0: Welcome to Harfer Chabad podcast, a project of the Klein Jewish Academy. In this podcast, we take ancient Jewish wisdom and make it relevant. Each podcast includes insights, cults from Jewish traditions and ideas, and helps give practical ideas on how to incorporate them into your daily life.
1: So today, we're going to talk a little bit about whether you're... Oops, I don't know, why I can't... so much for controlling the screen uh, there we go okay whether were are the you're the type of person if you,
2: if you use your keyboard it might be easier than using a mouse
1: okay yeah let's see it's still not working but okay We'll we'll get on to it <laughs> anyway Whether you're a type of person that does things for today, or do you have the longer view? Uh, We'll start off with uh, uh, Dave Ramsey. Uh, You may have heard about him. He's uh, very popular on podcasts and lectures and stuff like that. Uh, He wrote the book, The Total Money Makeover, uh, about finances, And he argues one simple point that credit cards are killing people's chances for any hope of financial freedom. And his logic is is pretty straightforward. You know, if you don't have the money to pay for something right now, chances are you won't have it to pay for it at the end of the month when the credit card bill comes in. You know, credit card companies are out there to make money and not to do you any favors, you know, if they're giving you these, you know, as you see in your junk of mail, snail mail, the pre-approval letters, or of course the emails as well. Um, and they offer, you know, some sort of incentive, you know, say a $250 gift card. If you sign up and get their no charge credit card, you know, fee, credit card. Um, they're doing that for a reason. And it's not for you. <laughs> it's for them. <laughs> they're going to make money off of you because you're going to use that credit card and you're going to spend and spend and uh, might not be able to pay the bills at the end of the month. And so they charge you interest, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh you know, you have to think about whether you're the type of likes to swipe now and pay later with the credit card, or do you have a budget and you uh, you make sure that you can really afford the item before you purchase it? Making it a little more abstract, you know, bringing it back, do you, do you consider yourself more concerned with the here and now or do you keep your eyes uh, more on tomorrow? Yeah, The choice of present over future or today over tomorrow. Um, the reality, which would be today versus the potential of tomorrow um, is a, a theme that goes throughout the, uh, the 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 Talmud. Uh, and we'll see several examples there, and you know we'll try to bring it back to something that we can take back as well. You know we'll look at some you know ancient Talmudic arguments uh, and debates, but we'll uh, also look at things uh, from a more modern point of view. Today's lesson will offer some Torah insight on this matter, which will hopefully give you a valuable perspective. You know, the question of whether you prioritize the present or the future has, you know, many ramifications. Uh, And as I said, we see that in Jewish law and the Talmudic debates. Yeah, the core question is, you know, should I focus what's on hand today? Or the opportunity may that may arise tomorrow let's look at the you know a few examples here. So. let's see. Come on, why don't you. There we go. Okay. Okay. Let's see, before we do text one. So, if you talk to a a Jew on the street, they probably say that Yom Kippur is the uh, holiest day of the year. You know, it's a day where we fast and we pray as Jews. Uh, Fewer people know that, you know, Yom Kippur is a fast day, but there are other fast days on the Jewish calendar. Uh, you know, just six days before Yom Kippur, uh, the third day of Tishrei, uh, the day after Rosh Hashanah, is another fast day. It's the fast of Gedalia. Now that uh, commemorates the uh, murder of Gedaliah ben Achikom, who served as the Jewish uh, governor uh, in Israel and did Roman rule just after the destruction of the Second Temple. It's a fast day, but you know, I guess most people would say, even if they knew about it, uh, that's not as important a fast day as Yom Kippur. You know, the uh, Yom Kippur is a, a mitzvah that's written in the Torah, um, and, but the fast of Gedaliah it was a, a rabbinic custom because you know, he, he lived in the, the post-Temple period. Um, so what's the law in, in the situation when on the fast of Gedalia, a person has health concerns and they're worried that if they fast today on the fast of Gedalia, that it might, Uh, hinder their chances to fast on Yom Kippur. Should he or she just, you know, deal with today and fast and not worry about the consequences six days away, because, you know, no one can accurately predict the future. I mean, maybe fast today and it won't affect their chances of, of fasting on Yom Kippur. Or uh, should they weigh the importance of the fast of Yom Kippur versus the fast of Gedalia and save their uh, energy uh, for them? And that does bring us to uh, text one. And uh, let's see you want to do that? Yeah, I'm
3: I'm going to start off with that. If one is certain that one should fast on some gedalia, it would cause him harm on Yom Kippur, possibly driving him into a life and death situation and forcing him to eat on Yom Kippur. Whereas he is certain that if he would be able to fast on some gedalia, With no harm, what should he do? This question was posed to the rabbi of Mezarech in a reposium printed in a book. Responsium printed in a book, O-L Moshe. The perimeters of the question were like this. If he does not concern himself with the consequences of fasting today, when Yom Kippur arrives, perhaps he can be considered an anus, one who was forced into non-compliance, who is automatically not obligated nor culpable. Or perhaps it is better to forego the current lighter fast so that he would be able to fast on Yom Kippur.
1: And there's arguments back and forth on this and well, as they put it here, the answer is beyond the scope of this class. But it's, it's, it's a good introduction of the type of debates that uh, we see throughout the the Talmud. So let's go on to our next example. Uh, I, I can't. I, I you know, <laughs> you'd have a- your, <laughs> you have to ask your you uh, have to ask your your rabbi on that one. Yeah, I'm sure it depends on the individual circumstances. We'll do a more modern example here is a. Uh, This is a case where uh, a certain Jew was in prison and he tried to plead for his release. He was, uh, I guess, the the board or or the judge offered him a one day, basically a get out of jail pass for any day of his choice. So he uh, contacted his rabbi. And let's see, Um, Carol, if you would.
4: A certain Reuben was in jail, unable to pray with the minion and perform another mitzvah. He pleaded with the minister or governor to let him free, but he was only granted a one-day pass for any day of his choice. Which day out of all the days of the year should Reuben choose to go to
1: shul? So the the, Radbads, the, the, the rabbi who, to, who this text was from uh, described in his response that the basis, the, the, the context of this person's question was that in prison, it's not possible to fulfill many of the, the commandments, the mitzvot, uh, particularly those relating to uh, praying with a minion and and, and things like that. So the question is, what is the best day to leave prison? Should he say wait until the next holiday, like Purim, where he could listen to the Megillah at, at the synagogue, or maybe wait until Yom Kippur, since many consider that the holiest day of the year, or you know taking that opposite position looking at the short term view maybe it's the, the the first day he can do it you know the, the next day or whatever uh yeah even if it's only a regular day so again that's the present opportunity get out of jail immediately Or the future. Wait till um, he can get out on an important day. So why are we talking about all this? Uh, You know, we know these Torah studies, uh, lessons come from the weekly Torah portion. And uh, that's... uh, where this question came from. In the beginning of the, this week's Torah portion, we have uh, why did that takes so long? Um, the Jews were commanded to make uh, this oil in, called inauguration oil um, that is used to inaugurate the, uh, the high priest, um and uh, the jewish kings um from the house of david and let's see let's, let me make sure we got everything there and um melissa if you would please
0: god spoke to moses saying and you take for yourself spices of the finest sort: of pure myrrh, 500 shekel weights; of fragrant cinnamon, half of it, 250 shekel weights; of fragrant cane, 250 shekel weights; and of cassia, 500 shekel weights, according to the holy shekel, and one hin of olive oil. You shall make this into an oil of holy anointment, a perfumed compound, according to the art of a perfumer. It shall be an oil of holy anointment.
1: Now they use the holy shekel there. The holy shekel had a, it was a, a heavier weight than the, most of the common shekels they used for money at, at that time. So that was, you know, definitely specified, you know, how many grams of uh, gold or silver the shekel was. Um, So the oil was mixed with herbs. The herbs were to scent the oil, um, and they did that by boiling those herbs and spices in the oil exactly how it was done was a matter of debate. And let's see if I
0: can get that.
1: Okay, and um, Paul,
5: if you would. the sages in Israel are of different opinions as to the purpose of the oil, Rabbi Meir said. The roots were boiled in it. Rabbi Yehuda said to him, surely the quantity of oil was not sufficient even to smear the roots with it. Rather, the roots were steeped in water so that they should not thereafter absorb the oil. The oil was then poured upon them, and they were left thus until the oil absorbed their scent. They then skimmed the oil off the roots. So we
1: see Rabbi Meir was of the opinion that the herbs were boiled with the oil, you know, without any any other substances around. But Rabbi Yehuda, you know, questions this because then the Oil would, the herbs would absorb that oil. So you wouldn't have much oil left. You'd have these oil-infused herbs as opposed to the herb-infused oil. So Rabbi Yehuda explains that took the herbs and you soaked them in water you know, to waterlog them so they couldn't absorb the oil. And then you introduce the oil and they skim the oil off the top. So, Rabbi Meir counters with the argument that through boiling the herbs with the oil long enough, everything turned into this liquid. You basically dissolve the herbs by cooking them in the oil long enough. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda doesn't like that idea because then it's, to him, it's no longer oil, but it's more like herbs, (laughs) melted herbs, an herbal mixture containing oil. So that's why he, he argues the way he does. The Torah says that they want it wants to make aromatic oil, not oil saturated herbs. So that's the crux of the debate there. In most of these instances with these debates, the argument's usually not about that particular Particular passage, rather. There's there's something deeper under, underlying, uh, under underneath, you know. So what then are they really arguing about? And we'll see a little bit of that in text four. Okay. And uh, I think we're back to you. Okay.
3: Rabbi Mayer's opinion is this. When the Jews needed to make the oil, they were primarily concerned that the oil be perfect in the present. And as such, they boiled the herbs in the oil. They weren't bothered that it would slightly diminish the future results as the oil wouldn't later be so disconcernable from the herbs. By contrast, Rabbi Yehuda holds that no matter where, no matter, we must be concerned about the future consequences. And so they couldn't boil the herbs in the oil because it would diminish the perfection later on. As such, Rabbi Yehuda states that they first soaked it in the water, even though it would possibly detract from the perfection at the moment, it would lead to later perfection.
1: That last verse talks about in the present tense. It says, and you shall make the holy anointing oil. But it concludes in the future tense. A holy anointing oil, it shall be. So we have two tenses, two conflicting elements at play there, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, Rabbi Meir's philosophy is to focus on the present. What matters most is the here and now. I'm making this oil, this anointing oil, I want to be... So the, the the process of making that oil, which is you know the the thing in front of us, is of greater significance than the outcome. He wants to make it oily and aromatic right now, so it could be I guess used immediately if necessary. And that's best achieved by boiling the oil in the herbs without introducing that step where you soak the herbs in the water. Rabbi Yehuda, a contrast, plays the looking forward to the future, and he values that result more. Accordingly, you need to plan ahead and invest in what will be so cooking the oil with the herbs might not be the purest form of that aromatic oil because you have that water added to it but it's worth it because you have for the future this anointing oil so an anointing oil it shall be let's go and take some more examples of the the present versus future question. And then we'll see that, again, it's it's often the debates between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir. And uh, we'll see the consistency of their views. Okay, come on. You can do it. Okay, so a couple of weeks back in our Torah portion of Mishpatim, uh, the Torah tells us the laws concerning a watchman. That's uh, someone who is given another item for safekeeping. There's different types or categories of watchmen, depending on the agreement between the person who's giving the object, uh, the item to the watchman, and the watchman, obviously. Uh, In general, there's four types of watchman. Today, we'll only focus on the first three. Uh, The fourth category is someone who uh, borrow something for from from another person. Uh, they still consider that a category of watchmen, even though they're just borrowing something. Um, so the first uh, three categories is uh, there's the Shomer Hinnom, the unpaid watchman. This is a situation uh, where you'll ask a friend to do you a favor. Yeah, say the watch your dog's uh, dog uh, while you're away on vacation.
3: Excuse me.
1: Yeah. One minute. Does
3: Shomer mean like custodian? Like if you say Shomer Shabbos, like is this the same?
2: The the literal translation of Shomer means guard. Okay. So when they're guarding Mm -hmm. something, they're custodian. When they're guarding the Shabbos, yeah, technically you could say it's still in no Shabbos, but they're guarding the shoppers. Okay. There you go.
1: Sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. Uh, so you know if you, yeah someone dog sits for you or a cat sits for you, um, yeah, you know, or you park your gar- car in a neighbor's garage while you're away. Um, essentially, this is. Your friend is now in your employment. Yeah, the, the friend is watching over your belongings. But your friend's not getting paid. So the level of responsibility for that friend is minimal. You know, if someone breaks into your neighbor's garage and steals your car while you're away, or the dog gets loose, runs away while you're on the vacation. Your friend's not responsible, you know, legally, logically responsible for any damages or losses. If you know, if your neighbor was negligent, you know, left the dog out, you know, just put the dog out outside the house and the dog ran away, then, you know, they weren't watching the dog, they weren't doing their job as a watchman, then you could, you know, the, the, uh, the plaintiff could 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 collect damages, (laughs) as it were. Okay, the, the, the next category is the Shomer's Sakhar. Uh, That's the paid watchman. Okay. Now you're paying a friend to watch the dog or uh, paying your neighbor to keep the car in the garage. Your friend is a, a, a true employee and such is liable for any damages or losses. You're paying them to guard your property. And then this one, which is the most relevant probably to our discussion is the socher, uh, the renter. Um, it's sort of tricky, it's sort of in between. It, this is the uh, scenario where you're renting your neighbor's car. And That makes you the car's custodian, the watchman for the car. Yeah, how do we view the relationship between you and, and your neighbor, who you rented the car from. So it's sort of a hybrid. You, you, you're you're not doing your friend any favor. You're not, you know, it's not an unpaid watchman for. Well, you're you paid to have the car and you're using it. You know, so in a certain sense you're like the paid watchman where the watchman's not doing any favors because he's getting paid for, for doing it but you can't compare it exactly with the paid watchman because you're paying your neighbor to use that car you know it's you're getting paid in the sense that you're using the car and that but you're paying for the privilege. <laughs> so what is the law with this socher? You know, do we consider them to be like the paid or unpaid watchmen? And of course, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir debated this. Okay. Uh, and uh, Carol again, I believe.
4: Torah did not specify what the status of the renter is, whether he is judged like an unpaid custodian or like a paid custodian. So the sages of Israel differed concerning him. How does a higher hire, a hire pay in the case of an accident, Rabbi Meir says, like an unpaid custodian? Rabbi Yehuda says, like a paid custodian.
1: So it's a little difficult to understand Rabbi Yehuda's position. You know, okay, yes, you're getting paid to watch the car because you're actually using it. You know, you get some benefit. So it's it's akin to paying for it. But The premise is that the paid watchman is being held to a higher standard of responsibility because he's being paid to safeguard the item. And so he should put in more effort to guard it. Um, But in the case of the renter, the payment you're receiving to watch the car has nothing to do with It's safekeeping. So there's something behind this debate that will give us the explanation. And you probably guessed it's this whole concept of present versus future. And let's see what the Rebbe says. Here. Um, and uh, let's go to uh, Melissa again.
0: My mind, Mayor values, values the present over the future, and at present, the owner is getting money, and unpredictable mishaps are distant worries of the future. As such, we assume that the type of custody the owner was relying on from the leasee from the lessee when he took the money was that of the unpaid custodian. Rabbi Yehuda values the future over the present. As such, so long as the owner is not confident that the object will be fully guarded from a future mishap, he would not rent out his item even for the money he's receiving right now. Inasmuch as the lessee is not doing a favor to the owner, Rather, he is paying money to use the item. We assume that the owner is relying on the lessee to keep the item safe with an added level of care akin to the paid custodian.
1: Okay, the paid custodian or watchman is responsible for unforeseen losses and damages because that's what you're paying him to do. Unforeseen damages or losses are, well, just as it says, they're they're, they're unpredictable things that may happen in the future. So we see Rabbi Meir is the present type of person. Yeah, when he looks at the transaction between... The renter, let's call him Bill. Bill is renting um, the car, and the rentee is Jack. So, so if Bill and uh, rents from Jack with the money exchanging hands it's understood like this, that, you know, Bill is trying to get money. You know, I want money. I'm getting it now. The unpredictable events of the future aren't really his concern. So when Bill hands the car keys to Jack, he's not assuming that Jack will watch over his car beyond the level needed for now. Yeah, the car is safe in the garage and Jack's a great guy. Everything's okay. Bill doesn't expect Jack to watch over his car at any level greater than a classic unpaid watchman. Now let's look at it from Rabbi Yehuda's perspective. He's more future oriented. So he thinks that when Bill hands the keys to Jack, he's very much concerned that you know somebody might break into the garage and steal the car. So by handing over the keys, Bill is expecting Jack to watch over his car like it's his, his own. In other words, Bill does expect Jack to watch over the car at the greatest level possible to prevent any future mishap. Therefore, Bill would be like the classic paid watchman or custodian. Okay. On to another example. (laughs) Uh, There's a uh, the laws of um, Okay, let's see what we got here. Yeah, so it depends the status of the unpaid custodian or paid custodian. It depends on your perspective, whether you're of the rabbi Meir school or the rabbi Yehuda school.
3: Ed versus
1: Shammai. Yes. yes, yeah. This is these are standard debates throughout the Talmud. There's another, uh, the laws of uh, saying grace after meals. This comes up as well. In long ago, the obligation to say grace after meals was often recited with a minion, you know, a quorum of, of 10. Know, like the prayers in the synagogue. The Talmud teaches us that if at least three people sit down together, now, today even, uh, we, they create what's called as a Zimun, uh, which is a, uh, a a group that should say grace together.
3: And when you say three people, though, do they mean three people?
1: or three men people. <laughs> I'll leave that to rabbi.
2: Three Jewish men over the ages of 13.
3: Right. Okay, well, they should specify that and not say people. <laughs>
2: they, they just hope
1: that no one asks. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm sure. <laughs> And that's what it says in text seven, three or more people eat together. It's a greater praise to God if they unite and give thanks to God together. The literal translation is people. Mm
2: -hmm. So, you know, sometimes because most probably I would, I would assume um, I didn't, don't quote me on this, but I would assume that if it's, even if it's three females that they could do Zimun, it's just the females probably don't do Zimun in front of the men.
1: Okay. Okay, so uh, yeah, so three people or more is a sufficiently large group to be available to band together to say grace. So that's sort of paying homage to the the whole idea that, that, that the that the custom was to say it, you know, if you had a minion. <clears throat> and Talmud presents two opinions on that. Um, and let's see, where are we up to, um, Paul, I think.
5: How much must one eat to be considered part of the Zimun? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir said, a kezait, the size of an olive. Rabbi Yehuda said, a kebitza, the size of an egg.
1: Yeah, so uh I eat is approximately twenty seven grams and uh kabeza is uh fifty-six, so almost uh, double. Generally speaking, the definition of eating is the kazae. So Rabbi Meir, in this case, you know, his opinion makes perfect sense. You know, just make it consistent. Uh, but why you know, Rabbi Yehuda's rationale? Talmud explains that when it comes to the, the mitzvah of uh, the... You know, saying grace, the Torah makes it clear that m- one must be satiated, implying that's not enough to simply eat, but one must be satisfied from eating. So, having the eat is probably not enough. So, they felt that the minimum should be that kabetsa, which again is, you know, Little over a half, yeah, you know, uh, twice as much. Um, so uh, I mean, they're they're equivalent over, you know, <laughs> 27 grams. Uh, <laughs> there must be something more behind this. So we uh, get to that something. Let's see. So, where are we? I think I went through everybody again. Okay. Go on. Yeah. Text
3: snoring, right? Yeah. (laughs) Rabbi Magir values the present. Accordingly, the moment a certain sense of eating has been achieved, the person has already the person is already considered part of the Zinnum. Inasmuch as the usual legal amount for eating is a k'ayit, as soon as that benchmark of eating has passed, the obligation of Zinnum applies. By contrast, Rabbi Yehuda takes the future into consideration. As much as the immediate sense of eating is not the Linchpin. linchpin, Rather, it is the result of eating, namely, that a person should be full. That is what brings about the obligation to say grace. Accordingly, we must hit the mark of eating to be full, which is the amount
1: of a Yeah. So again, Rav Amaira looks at the present, the here and now. And the fact of the matter is, you've eaten. You might get hungry again rather soon if you've only eaten 27 grams, but that's in the future. That's not the present. Rabbi Yehuda looks towards the future. It's true that you've already eaten a legally significant amount of food, but if you look at it in the long run that's insignificant so we got to look at the big picture there and look at whether you're satisfied or not yeah, if you're you've eaten the kibeta then we can count you as part of this zimu this is what happens Probably every day in yeshivas, this is what the yeshiva students do. They go through these passages in the Talmud Torah, whatever, and will debate with each other you know take a take a stand you know like uh, Rabbi Meir or Rabbi Yehuda, and they uh, discuss these passages. The concept is that the, there's behind any given opinion, there's a philosophy behind that view. As Robin said, when you talk about the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, uh, you know Hillel was typically more lenient, more for the common man. And Shammai was a little bit more uh, keeping to the letter of the law. And usually that school or that rabbi, that opinion is consistent throughout whenever there's a debate between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda. Typically, Rabbi Meir will look at the the short term or present view, and Rabbi Yehuda look at the long term or future. Yeah, we read you read in the uh, the, the Talmud, the Mishnah, debates where one side calls out a, a particular rabbinic opinion which is not consistent with that Rabbi's other opinions. And that causes that prompts you to take a look at that passage again and maybe reinterpret that passage, you know, saying that, hey, well, Rabbi Meir is not looking at the the, the, the near term in this case, but that's because he was only talking about a certain circumstance, a, a corner case, so to speak. So that's that's why it looked like he, he veered away from his consistent philosophy, but he really didn't. And uh, these debates can get quite lengthy. But the positive side, of the another spin to this underlying philosophy is that many random or seemingly random discussions throughout the the Talmud, um, can be united when you understand this underlying um, reasoning. And we're able to open a whole new way of understanding these things. And it underscores an important point, the unity of the Torah. Everything's connected, and there's themes throughout that, that unify uh, the, uh, the verses in, in the Torah. And of course, one would expect that because there was the uniting force behind the Torah is God Himself. Okay, so let's get to back to you know what's in it for me. What, what does this have to do with me? You know, we're going to present one more example of this present versus future. This time it'll be less of an academic debate, um, though it'll be more of a, a, a spiritual application. Uh, we're going to talk about teshuvah. Teshuvah is, you know, you know some people. Um, talk to it like uh, repentance, or uh, it can be translated as return. Uh, You sinned, and you want to get back into the fold, uh, uh, return that connection with God, as we've talked about. Okay, let's see what these are. Okay, we talked about that, that Matters can be linked because it's all under the unity of God okay okay, text ten okay, not yet so let's take Teshuvah to a bro- in a broader sense. it's about any moral, spiritual, or religious improvement and growth. You've done something wrong or you're striving to be a better person, do something better. Um, You go through the process of doing teshuva and uh, you can achieve that. Now, teshuva is is a mitzvah. It's, It's a commandment in the Torah. And so it has guidelines and parameters around it and uh, we can see here in text 10 that it's a positive commandment that a sinner repent from their sin before God and confess so now there's two aspects there you gotta repent and you have to confess And actually, in terms of confession, that's a verbal confession. You know, what's the point of having to actually verbalize the sin? Well, human nature, we, we like to justify our mistakes. And that could be a roadblock to doing true teshuva. You know, admitting the mistake by putting it into words you know, prevents us from covering it up or making excuses. You know, once it's out there, it compels you to acknowledge that mistake and make that change sincerely. So you need to do uh vidoy Uh, which is uh, you you specify the mistake or mistakes that you've made. Um, Some say that stating the specifics aren't really necessary. Rather, you could just say, forgive me, for I have sinned. And that's sufficient. And so that, you know, again, brings us to the present and the future thing. Um, so let's go on um, let's see. Uh, so uh, Carol, if you would.
4: Um, I'm gonna read this and then I have a question. During
1: confession one one okay, oh sure.
4: during confession, one must detail the sin as it is stated. And Moses returned to God and said, please, these people have sinned a great sin and have made themselves a god of gold. This is the statement of Rabbi Yehuda Ben Bava. Rabbi Akiva says that the verse states, fortunate is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is hidden, which teaches that one need not detail his sins. So, um uh, my question was, and, and uh, Rabbi Cushy had talked about this, that that really confession uh, uh, in the way that you detail your sin is really not encouraged because there's a belief that going over that sin, actually, if you if you committed the sin, maybe you enjoyed what you did. Like, you know, okay, so I ate the cookies, I said I wasn't going to do it, but I ate them all. Now you've done something wrong that you enjoyed doing, and now you're going over it again. Um, and so you've enjoyed it actually twice.
1: Oh, you replayed it, so to speak.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, what do you say to that? <laughs> do you agree with that or? Is this why they're saying, which teaches that one need not detail his sins? Um, What do you have to say about that? Anything? What do you feel, Michael?
1: Oh, me? I'm not a confident rabbi. <laughs> well, is the
4: rabbi is, is Rabbi Cushy here. She she
1: yes. she wants to hear
2: your opinion. She doesn't want to just hear my opinion. It's easy to get my well, I
4: opinion. Did, I did hear Rabbi Kushi's opinion.
1: She knows my opinion. She wants to know your opinion. okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Um. Well, I mean, I I think if you. do confess Uh, you you, you sure certainly shouldn't have the have the reliving the the guilty pleasure in your mind
3: yeah but then what do you confess to a vague sin like i've sinned well you could have sinned in any which of 10 ways we're not perfect people
1: and and, well we say we do every every day in the prayers where we hit ourselves on the chest yeah. and uh, admit to all these but sins, covering everything. None, none of, hopefully, none In of life. which you did. You did. Right. It was, it's for uh, on behalf of the community, so that that's another aspect too. Um, you know, it's. Again, the, the, the verbal confession is to try and have your inner self not make up excuses and invalidate
3: and it. Well, what if you confess to the sin in a category? Like, "You know, "I had the sin, I lied?" Well, you don't have to go into details about what you lied about. I lied in the story.
1: Well that, So at
3: least you're taking some um more meaning into the confession as to being
1: a little more specific. Yeah, no one said you'd have to make it that specific. That, I, and that you know, if, if you were that specific, then you are reliving it.
5: Right. You so, know, so,
1: but yeah,
0: good. I, I so sin of say,
1: not eating you know, kosher. What?
4: Okay. So, Michael, do you think then there's just power in saying uh, briefly, I lied or I stole, um, without taking pleasure in the retelling of the story, of the act itself?
1: I think think so. I I mean, I think psychologically that you're, you're admitting it, you know, okay, you're not posting on Facebook. Uh, but you're you're bringing it out and when you're saying a prayer to God, you're making a connection with God. You're having a conversation with God. So you're admitting that you know you did wrong and you know what you did wrong. So I think there's some benefit in that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So why does Rabbi Akiva, in this case, Rabbi Yehuda Yehuda and Rabbi Akiva, go fishing for verses that try to avoid that, avoiding that? specific, more specific verbal confection. And let's see if we can get this going. Come on. You can do it. Oh, there you go. Ah, here we go. Okay. Uh, So now we're on to, well, Melissa's not there. So Paul, if you could.
0: No, I'm here.
1: Oh, okay. Then text 12 there.
0: One should specify their sins so as to be truly shamed by them. Some oppose and say not to specify, so others shouldn't suspect this sinner of other sins, and thus (sighs) this sinner loses credibility in other legal contexts.
1: Okay, so here there's they're they're implying at least that you're saying you're sin out loud in front of everybody you know or in front of people uh that I wouldn't necessarily agree with I was a politician, I was caught on something, yeah, then yeah or yeah you know, something was was made public i i would i would do that but uh not not for you know i, I ate that cheeseburger this is not uh, cooperating there. Oh, Almost that
2: Not better. Um. Yeah. On the, next, the next slide, the text. Yeah,
1: next one. Not yeah. good.
4: Oh, isn't it your turn this time. Getting there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Now it's poor.
5: The opinion that calls for a person to specify their sin considers the added intensity that it will lend to the teshuva and is not concerned with the future consequences. By contrast, Rabbi Akiva is of the opinion that we must take the future into consideration. In every situation, he would immediately see to the future consequence. Thus, even though specifying the sin now could intensify the teshuva, we must consider the future negative consequences.
1: Okay, so in this case, this this Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava, is concerned with the present. So, knowledge and verbalize your mistakes, and that will deepen the sincerity of the process of teshuva. Not worried about the future consequences. Rabbi Akiva, in contrast, does consider those consequences. He focuses on the future consequences in terms of the lack of that person's credibility in the future. Oh, well, this person admitted this sin. You know, how can I trust them not to do it again in the future? Yeah, so I guess it it really depends, getting back to our discussion, you know, what motivates you personally to do a, a turnaround once you've messed up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. some people are motivated by a sense of guilt others by fear and others by a, a sense of moral conviction but there's another thing that, that sort of stands as a very different motivator and that's what you know that's been a, a thread throughout many of these classes. The desire to reconnect again—that's the the core of teshuva—is to return to to connect again with God. It's your your soul crying out to. Get back to their source, their, their maker. Yeah, you know, soul's deepest desire is to reunite with God. And when they're adrift, the, the, it, it's it's painful. The soul is, is, is pained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coming from such a place, there, there's truly no need to specify the sin. You know, if you have that sort of mindset, you know, if you're motivated. But or you know it's it's a lot different than if you're motivated by fear or guilt, you know if you're motivated by fear or guilt, you specify that you did something really bad, it helps intensify that fear and guilt to get you to the right place. but when you're tapping into your soul and you're just crying out to reconnect um. The sin's not very relevant, and, and, and specifying it won't, you know, change the, the the scope of the experience. So then it doesn't have to be mentioned. And you know, I, much as we'd like to think of this, it, the problem is. Uh, most people aren't motivated at such a deep spiritual level. You know, the average person, uh, you know, guilt is a, is a good motivator. <laughs> so, why would Rabbi Akiva absolve every Jew from specifying this sin by the fact, you know, when the fact is that only a few select people? can experience this deeply religious, deeply spiritual sense and uh, do the Teshuva that way. Well, Rabbi Zakiva is looking to the future. He's looking at the long-term game, end game so to speak, the hidden potential in in every person. Yeah, we don't have that in us now, but if we continue to truly repent and, and down the line in the future, we could be that person as well. All right. Oh, didn't realize that time. Sorry about that. Oh. yeah, we're now yeah, we're yeah okay. So uh, let's okay. This is a it's a long story. This is about uh, after the destruction of the temple. Uh, uh, these Sages are, are walking there, and they, they're crying and they see uh, the, all the destruction. Rabbi Akiva is laughing. Uh, Rabbi Akiva was happy because he saw they saw this fox emerging from the sight of the holy holies, as it says there. Um, that was the fulfillment of a prophecy so in, since he witnessed this fulfillment of the pro- prophecy he knows that the other prophecies will become true as well and the temple will be rebuilt that's why i was laughing um, And the sages saw the the the, the val- validity of his of his uh, argument and said akiva you have comforted us akiva you've comforted us <laughs> He didn't see just the fox; he saw the potential for the future redemption and the rebuilding of the of the temple and that's how he looked at every Jew that performs the he didn't care what the reason was if the Jews is returning to God it's really because their soul is reaching out and pushing them to return to God he. Had Such faith in the power of every Jew's return that he absolved all Jews from specifying their sin. And that's basically what the Rebbe says in the next. Whoops. Ah. Ah, Sorry about that. Uh, I don't know where I am. Okay. There we go. Okay. So that's what the Rebbe says here. That he looks into the inner reality and sees what's coming, what will come in the future. Yeah, I just want to. Get through this.
2: Come on.
4: Okay.
1: So. What's the conclusion really here? Is try to be like Rabbi Akiva. (laughs) Yeah. Don't choose lazy explanations for your positive choices. It says here. What does that mean really? Yeah. Sometimes happens that you're inspired. You know to do something good. You make positive change in your life. Um, maybe perform some extra mitzvah or be nicer to a friend, something like that. Well, when that happens, we sometimes get a little lazy and find you know, just sort of banal excuses for our behavior you know just okay, I want to synagogue a little more because well not not in this environment but Used to be that the rabbis cholins, you know, the 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 kiddish after the service was so good. You decided to give a little extra charity this month because you need the tax write-off. Well, you know, don't think of it that way. Believe in yourself, as it says on the slide, and your inherent goodness and your ability to be even better. Yeah, these justifications can be can be correct, but they're sort of lazy because they they let you get away with doing just what you're doing and nothing more. It doesn't reach into you and incentivize you to become a better person. You're just the same person you were yesterday. You just handed out a, a few more bucks. But well, Rabbi Kiva has the view that, you know, and, and, and demands much, much more of you. Yeah, you're being too easy on yourself. It's, it's not that in, in your core, your motivation is to be a better person. It's, it's, it's a noble, noble motiva- motivation. It's your, your soul that's pushing you to be better. When you think of that, about it that way, you know, then you have to ask yourself, how can you not actually be better? You know, don't be lazy about how good you really are. Grab that, those spurts of inspiration. Recognize that they come from, a, from your soul. And if you capitalize it, you'll see how morally courageous and spiritually attuned that you really are. Okay. Sorry we went so long, but I I thought we had a good discussion and all. Uh, And certainly something to to think about. Thank you so much,
2: Michael. I'm going to run away for a little bit, but uh, um, when you guys are done, just... uh when everyone's out i'll end the meeting thank you all for joining us sorry that i couldn't be too participatory but uh
1: oh you have your uh, film going on in a few minutes
2: <laughs> i've got a lot a lot of it no that was last night
1: oh that was last night oh, okay that was last night but once i
2: get the recording i'll send it
1: out oh,
2: okay great all right so next next
1: class is the people always come first except for when they don't. A true leader isn't concerned about being a true leader. Wow, this is going to be interesting, uh, even though it's (laughs) post-election. But but it it should be an interesting uh, thing. Oh, any other questions or discussions? I know it kept you long enough, but
4: it was a good—it was a good night. We did have good discussions, so I thank you, and I don't mind when it lasts a little longer when we're talking about things that are interesting and important.
1: Okay. I mean, you always have the option to log off anyway, so we're
4: not—we're
1: not holding you here. And... Right. Okay, good, good.
4: Good night, everyone, and thank you so much.
1: Good night. Good
5: night, everybody. Yeah, have a good rest of the week. Thank thank you, Michael.
1: Okay.
0: Bye now. This podcast is produced by Harfer Chabad and the Klein Jewish Academy. To learn more, visit harferchabad.org forward slash podcast.